Well, tonight we will be in the book of Judges, and that's uh, book of Judges chapter 11. You can find our passage on page 211 in the Pew Bible. We're looking at Judges chapter 11. We'll be looking at the first 28 verses of chapter 11. You're reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. And then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. Uh, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come, be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now that you're in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, and the, uh, uh, they said, this is why we have turned to you now, that you, may go out, that you may go out with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord be, will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mitzvah. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me and that you come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now therefore restore it peaceably. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab nor the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up through Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness of the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. So they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the, for the, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon and Israel. And Israel said to him, please let us pass through your land to our country. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the land of Israel. And they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited the country. And they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and the wilderness to the Jordan. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? And all that the Lord, our God, has dispossessed before us, we will possess. 
Now are you better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel, or did he ever go to war with them? Well, Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages, and in, in, in Arur uh, and its villages, uh, and, uh, and in all the cities in, uh, and are on the banks of the, that are on the banks of the Arnon. Three hundred years, why did you not deliver them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Uh, so uh, first I can say that there's a, uh, there is a copy of the sermon outlined on the back of your bulletin for you to follow along if that's helpful for you. Uh, but also uh, just as, as we're thinking about this history, um, you know, uh, there's, there's two guys, that uh, fascinating figures in church history that I've loved to read about. And that is the one is Teddy Roosevelt. The other one is Winston Churchill. All right. Winston Churchill is probably the most famous British prime minister to ever live. And he was the one who led England uh, through uh, two world wars. All right. And so, uh, but what's interesting is that it's funny, but if you go over to England, Brits are amazed at Americans' fascinations with Winston Churchill because they don't like him that much. <laughs> so, and so it's really funny how I uh, had their own take on Winston Churchill, but he, he was considered to be the last political leader of the British Empire. The British Empire, remember they used to say, the sun never sets on the British Empire, because they had territories all over the globe. Uh, but then, at, by, by the time of World War II, the British Empire had come to an end. By then, uh, India was its own country, uh, had been given their independence, and, and, all, basically, and, and basically through a lot of, actually, American interference, <laughs> Britain ended up giving up a lot of these territories and let them become independent countries. And so the British Empire ended, and Winston Churchill was essentially the last politician, uh, prime minister, to oversee the, the great British Empire. He had fought through the Boer Wars in, in Africa uh, before, before, the, before 1900. Um, and he had been captured, uh, escaped from a military camp. A very, very interesting guy. Um, and he rose to the ranks through British, uh, in British politics. Uh, he was very hawkish on defense and, was, and the need for military preparation, especially as he saw in the early 1900s, uh, uh, Germany clearly arming up uh, for war. Uh, he was called a warmonger, and uh, at least until the war to end all wars, which is only World War I, uh, which the war to end all wars broke out and in 1914. So that was an unimaginably bloody conflict, and everyone, you know, they said it was inconceivable that it could happen a second time. And so the political establishment made it very clear that while they might want a warmonger like Churchill at the helm during wartime, during peacetime, he was useless and, and not needed. Uh, even he kept, especially since Churchill kept railing about the looming dangers uh, stirring in Germany uh, and in other parts of Europe. He was thoroughly rejected. Uh, um, and, and tensions uh, did rise uh, over, over, the, over the few decades uh, after the First World War. And, uh, uh, but uh, finally, when, in 1938, when it was really worried that uh, Germany might attack and, uh, and violate and basically send the dominoes toppling for another world war, uh, famously the Prime Minister of England at the time, Neville Chamberlain, flew and personally met with Hitler and came back with a signed peace pact and came back to a huge celebration and celebrating saying, we have won peace in our time, right? Famous last words, because Hitler invaded Poland the next day. And eight months later, 
Uh, eight months later, uh, Neville Chamberlain resigned and was replaced with Churchill because they needed the lion again. And so, um, the instru- like even though they didn't like Churchill, they needed him. And the instruments of our deliverance can be surprising. That is no less true than in the book of Judges, as we consider the ministry of the work of Jephthah. And so tonight, as we consider his work, we need to consider first the difficulty and and the surprising place where we find a deliverer, and then secondly, the first surprising act uh, of that deliverer. So we're going to look at first uh, verses uh, 1 through 11 first about the surprising place to find a deliverer. And, and in the first three verses, we see the deliverer's rejection. Uh, Jephthah, we are told, was the son of a prostitute. Uh, and uh, prostitute, it means exactly what you think it is. It means uh, even in the Hebrew, all right? And he was, uh, he was considered an illegitimate child. Uh, by his uh, father, and his brothers were afraid that he was going to somehow, you know, worm his way into their inheritance. So they drove him off. Uh, and uh, we find out later the elder, elders of Gilead of the of the town uh, were in support of uh, making Jephthah flee. Which means you don't flee unless someone's going to hurt you. All right. So they were threatening violence upon him, and so he they ran him out of town. And so uh, while he was out there, he attracted to himself, as the author says, worthless men uh, who similarly had no property and were left to their own devices and found some help uh, in this, uh, this man, Jephthah, found a leader for them. Uh, but uh, see, we, the thing is that we know that God is going to use Jephthah in the future to deliver God's people. And it's interesting, as I'm thinking about this kind of rejection theme, it, it comes up a lot in the Old Testament. Uh, you have Moses, who, you know, he had a wildly different upbringing, being raised in the palace. Uh, but at, at the same time, he was still rejected. Pharaoh sought to kill him, and he was driven out of Egypt. Uh, and, and, even while, and he wasn't really that well received by Israel when he was actually sent to go lead them either. Uh, and, uh, and Jephthah, you know, while he, being no Moses, uh, he is learning what it means to lead men into battle. How to scrape by. He's, get, he's gaining the skills necessary to deliver God's people one day, even though he doesn't know it. And so several scholars remind us this passage teaches not to despise someone because of their background, because of any kind of ignoble or shameful birth or background. That, that, that should not bear our, 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 that should not have a negative shade upon our judgment of them. Uh, what they do with their own lives and their own character, their own decisions, that's what matters. And so we would do well to consider how God might use our own hardships to shape us for his purposes. And so we see Jephthah's rejection here, but then we see in verses 4 through 11 the deliverer's exaltation. And so the Ammonites have uh, geared up for battle. And so to kind of get a picture of this, and I had, a, I had a visual prepared for this, and it was the best visual. I promise you, the greatest visual you've ever seen in your life, you know, uh, was going to be on that screen, I promise. And so, um, uh, and so I'll, I'll show next week. But, um, but if, if my arm is Israel, all right, you've got to deal with my arm now. So if my arm is Israel, and so, and so this is the, the Transjordan tribes, the three tribes, Manasseh, half the tribe of Manasseh and Gad and Reuben, they're over here. And then you have the other tribes of Israel right here, right, right here okay? Um, and then you have the river. The, uh, the River Jordan that's separating them. Um, so um, Ammon is over. Ammon's over here. 
Okay, and Ammon is in Gilead. It's kind of like right here on the edge, and so Ammon, Ammon is kind of overlapping with Gilead, which is kind of overlapping into the Transjordan Jordanian tribes, and so it's just kind of a big mess. But that's that's where they are. But what? But last chapter, what it said was the the Ammonites and others were not only messing with the tribes over on this side of the Jordan; they were coming across into across. Uh, the Jordan into the tribe of Benjamin and 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 uh, Ephraim and Judah and starting to spread and, and to attack. So so it's it's getting worse. All right. So it's not just there. There. So this idea of that they just want a little track of land. Uh, it seems uh, well that'll come up a little bit later. But that's kind of the visual of what's what's going on here. So the Ammonites are are at it again. And there's apparently a leadership crisis in Gilead because there's nobody to lead them in battle against the Ammonites. The elders of Gilead, we find, Gilead, we find out are, are, if nothing else, very practical people. War tends to have that effect of erasing your prejudices when you are going to die. So, apparently Jephthah had made a reputation for himself uh, and his men. So the elders uh, approached Jephthah about him leading their forces into battle. And bear in mind, that's all they offer him. The, the word there to, to become our leader is a military leader, exclusively. They don't offer him... Uh, leadership over over everybody, uh, but Jephthah's anger is pretty understandable at this point. I think we all kind of would side and <laughs> with Jephthah and be like, "Yeah, tell him off, Jephthah," you know, uh, because he because he's you know here this, these elders supported his brothers, running him out of town, and now they want to come down when they need help. Now when now when they're distressed, they want that. Now I'm the bell of the ball. Is that what's going on here? Right, and so. Uh, and their answer to that is, yes, that's exactly why we're here. Yes, that's exactly, yes, absolutely. <laughs> we are absolutely here because uh, we have no one else and you're the man and we need you. <laughs> and so they said, and they said, but we neglected to mention we're also going to make you head over the people. All right. And so they sweeten the deal. And uh, it's hard to say whether Jephthah is just a shrewd negotiator or where they're so desperate, they just throw it in there. But either way, he says, fine. He says, uh, he says, look, uh, I, you know, I want to come home. So if you do it and you make me leader and head, then yeah. And and but he also says, if the Lord gives me victory, as well. So it, so he you know he, he knows what side you know the, the bread is buttered on here. All right, he knows he knows that it is the Lord who gives victory. And this is a, this is essentially here Jephthah's call to judge Israel. It does say later on that that Jephthah judged Israel for I think it's six years. So he is an official judge of Israel. He's even mentioned in Hebrews 11 as one of the four judges that's, that's mentioned by name. And so, uh, and so he, but he is the unlikely servant that God calls in an unlikely way, in an unspecial way. There's nothing, nothing uh, crazy about here. It's just kind of lo- seems like local politics, really. Uh, and the, but the, here, this, the one who's rejected is now uh, that times are hard, it's sought out. And multiple commentators, scholars, um, highlighted how this uh, parallels even grammatically with uh, how they rejected God in the previous chapter with their idolatry. And then the people eventually went to God pleading for help. And they said, if you even look at the grammar, several scholars did actual visual comparisons. It's very similar how it's described between how how they acted with God and how they act with Jephthah. So, uh, and, um, and, and, and so... Uh, there's, and there's even a thematic connection that we can make uh, with the initial rejection of Jephthah as Israel's deliverer and even the rejection, future rejection of Christ as the Messiah. The people of God are not very good about receiving their deliverers. But this comes to our, our 
our, our next subpoint here, which is simply that <laughs> I just entitled it, Will the Real Jephthah Please Stand Up? Because it's not exactly clear who Jephthah is. He's a bit of a mess, as we're definitely going to find out, because there's a very, because uh, we're going to spend the entire next week, we're going to spend talking about did Jephthah actually sacrifice his daughter after the battle? That's, uh, that's next week. All right. Um, and there's scholars who say he did, there's scholars who say he didn't. Uh, so we're going to take a look at it and see what we can figure out. But, um, but we are told that he was born in shame, and then he was ran off. He took a band of worthless men and, and to, to his, as his friends. And it seems like we're seeing Abimelech 2.0. seems like we're seeing a guy that's following the pattern of Abimelech, who re- definitely was not a good thing for Israel when we looked at him. But, it, but then we note that the author of Hebrews explicitly names Jephthah, and not Abimelech, but definitely names Jephthah uh, as a man of faith. Who accomplished great deeds of faith. And so, and, and so that just means that Jephthah is a complicated figure. Just like any person, any human being. Now, confusion about God's instruments of deliverance is nothing new. Uh, you know, King David was run out of town more than once by wicked men. So were the prophets. I already mentioned Moses. What about Joseph? Joseph was by his own brothers. And so it would, it, would seem, it would seem that there is a theme of surprise concerning the instruments of God's deliverance for his people. And so we would do well to slow our own judgment as the church, especially of people with a, from that, who come from a variety of non-traditional backgrounds. But there's a practical application here that comes by the way of Matthew Henry, who said that you know, even in times where we would find ourselves in the place of rejection, where God might use us, that we need to let, even in our rejection, to let virtue work its course. To continue to follow the Lord. To seek after Him, even as we are rejected by others. Uh, that in time, we may be of use to the Lord. That He may redeem that relationship. He may redeem that reputation. Um, but that we need to let, as, he, as Henry says, let virtue work its course in us as we follow the Lord. Even if we are rejected by even those in God's church. And so, uh, and, and so at the end of the day, uh, Jephthah knows, we find out, that it is the Lord. It is the God of Israel who will give victory to his people. And Jephthah does point to the surprising ways that God brings his instruments of deliverance into the lives of his people. And this is no less true, as I mentioned earlier, it's no less true than in our Savior Jesus Christ who was, as Isaiah says, despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows who was, who was believed to be stricken by God and afflicted, who was, even though he was innocent, was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Christ is the deliverer of the Jews. Indeed, the world did not expect, but he is the one that we needed. And this brings us to our second point tonight, which is uh, verses 12 through 28, and the Deliverer's surprising first act, uh, which, intru- which in- may introduce us into, if you haven't looked into it yourself before, but into the exciting world of diplomacy. Uh, Jephthah does something that no other judge has done that's on record in, in the scriptures here, uh, which is uh, he attempts to make peace with his enemy before fighting him. I mean, you know, what, you know, why put your neck on the line if you don't have to, right? I mean, it's worth a shot, right? He just got made head of Gilead. Why not be like, hey, I made peace, they left? Because we're dealing with an invading army, 
right? If they stop invading, well, problem solved. So Jephthah writes to the king of the Ammonites, and, and, and you'll notice that he assumes a very kingly position. He now says, why are you invading my land, right? This, is, this land belongs to me now. Uh, and he demands to know why the Ammonites think they can, they can do what they're doing. And they respond by saying, hey, there's that section of land right there, um, uh, right there, that belongs to us. It was taken from us uh, a long time ago when you Israelites came in, and we want it back. So give it back. And, uh, and so uh, Jephthah um, you know, then sends a lengthy response, basically saying, get your facts straight, because you're really wrong here. You're wrong historically, you're wrong theologically, and you're wrong recently. And we'll look at each three of those there. Because Jephthah, he argues that the Ammonites are wrong historically by reciting essentially the history of Numbers chapters 21 to 24, highlighting that Israel did its very best to respect the surrounding nations of, of Moab, of Edom, uh, and not fight with them, even though it meant very, very inconveniently having to go the very long way around to get to where they needed to go. And then they got to this spot of land, it's about 50 miles of land, where they could not go around. They had to go through it in order to get to the Jordan River to go across. And so they asked permission from the, not the Ammonites, but from the Amorites. And so it's easy to get those mixed up. But the Amorites, and said, which are different peoples, and, 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 and instead of, and when they asked permission from the Amorites, the Amorites attacked Israel, and they lost, and Israel won. And so the Ammonites here, he's saying, are wrong because, look, nothing was stolen from the Ammonites. The Amorites attacked Israel. Israel won fair and square. The land belongs to them. The, and so, so he says, get your history straight because you're wrong. Secondly, he says, you're wrong theologically because Israel didn't, ex- didn't steal anything uh, rather, that they were unjustly attacked, and their God, the Lord, Yahweh, gave them the land. He gave, the, he gave it to them. And so he says in verse 23, since Yahweh gave us the land, are you supposed to have it now? You a follower of Yahweh all of a sudden? I don't think so. Right? He gave it to his people, and that's us, so it's ours. And then he says, would you not possess what Chemosh, your own God, gives to you to possess? Now, we have to pause here real quick and get a little bit into the weeds here. Because uh, many have accused Jephthah at this point of two things. Uh, first, um, they have accused Jephthah of affirming the existence of other gods because he references Chemosh. Uh, and, and so they've accused Jephthah of being a syncretist, of just mixing together uh, all the gods, worshiping Yahweh and Chemosh, and kind of like just mixing them all together. Um, but actually... Uh, um, but I'm actually not inclined to think this possible, but I don't think it's true. Uh, I think simply that what he's doing is he's using the, Ammonite, the Ammonites' own religion against them. Because they believed that deities were territorial. And Chemosh was the god of battle and victory. And so since Chemosh didn't give the victory, right? Uh, Chemosh gave the... And so, uh, and so he's saying, look, you keep the land Chemosh gave to you. We keep the land that Yahweh gave to us. That's it. Unless you're saying that you're not happy with what Chemosh gave to you. Um, secondly, um, uh, Jeff, uh, Jephthah is accused of making an error here. Since the primary Ammonite god... Now remember, all these guys are polytheists. 
They, they, they worship multiple gods. But the chief Ammonite god was Marduk, not Chemosh. Chemosh was the god of the Moabites. And, uh, and, so, um, and so some say Jephthah's just kind of screwing it up. He just doesn't know what he's talking about here. Um, but I actually don't think he's doing that. And I don't think that Jephthah is just getting the god wrong, or, is he, or the, even that he's getting it wrong intentionally just to stick his finger in their eye and say, ha ha, I got your god wrong. Um, because uh, it's, it's believed at this point the Ammonites had conquered Moab. And when you conquer a territory, uh, like pagan, like the Canaanites, when they conquered another territory, um, and uh, you would absorb their god too. You would take it in and add it to your pantheon of gods. Now it would be less than your god. It would be Marduk number one, because he won. And then there would be, under that would be Chemosh. And they would make sacrifices to Chemosh, because they wanted to keep Chemosh happy as well. And, and so what I actually think Jephthah is doing here is he's making a subtle dig at the Ammonites' territorial claim. Uh, because remember, their claim is saying, this land was stolen by you Israelites from us a long time ago. And, to, and Jephthah, inciting Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, is referencing the fact that the Ammonites are saying, we want land that actually never belonged to us, but may have one time belonged to the to the." Moabites and the Amorites, uh, group, groups of people that we have now conquered. So they're like, okay, well, hold on. So you're, you're up in a tizzy because we have land that we won in battle, but you conquered a people and you want their, their ancient ter- territorial land back? I don't think so. Like, that's not how this works. And so uh, it's a bit of the pot calling the kettle black. In short, Jephthah says, get your theology straight. Don't you believe that our gods give us the lands to possess? Go be happy with what you have and leave us alone. And finally, Jephthah says they are wrong recently in that for the last 300 years that Israel has been in possession of the land, no one has ever tried to take it back. Now certainly the, the people that they took it from were not happy that the Israelites had it. But in all those time, he said, no one ever attacked us. No one ever had a, had a battle over it. So why, after all that silence, do you want it back all, all of a sudden? What, what, what changed? Or is it, re, is it really you just want some land? And you just want some prime land because this gives you access to water, which is the most likely scenario. And so all of this... And as convoluted as a lot of that may have just been a bunch of word salad. Uh, but um, but, as, but as, as much as um, the diplomacy there is important for us to understand, what's involved there and what it highlights for us is the value and the importance of knowing our salvation history. It highlights the importance of knowing our salvation history. Because, first of all, practically speaking... We see that salvation history can teach us very practical things about even engaging in war. This episode is actually a fascinating case study in the theory of just war. I was, just, I was talking about this with Matt Peden this week because I, I assist him with teaching that course on just war theory for the naval base. And, uh, um, uh, and, um, and, and this was just a fascinating case uh, of, because this, you had this whole back and forth here between heads of state about... Uh, about the most the, the the first the first 
facet of a just war. How do you know a war is right? How do you know it's right to go to war? The first thing you've got to have is just cause. You've got to have a just reason in order to go, go uh, to war. You have to have it. And um, you could be defending. Uh, you're being attacked and you're defending your own territory. That's a good reason. You could, um, the enemy is about to attack, and so but since they're about to attack, you're de- doing a kind of a preemptive strike, def- like a defensive step. Defensive wars are almost always just, okay? Um, uh, and, uh, or, but sometimes it also can be justified to go reclaim territory that was illegitimately taken from you. That could be, uh, that can be a cause for just war as well. And, and notice that's what the Ammonites are saying. Right? This territory was unjustly taken for us, and we want it back. Right? And, so, and so they're having this back and forth, because even in the ancient world, people ju- couldn't just go willy-nilly about attacking each other. Uh, and, and even though we, we, in modern times we, look, we have a negative view, we, we kind of look down on past cultures as lower cultures, thinking them more primitive. But in, the, but in reality, we find out they have a rather, like even here, there's a rather complex dispute that is at least being attempted to be sorted out through diplomacy. Now, that diplomacy is not going to work. They're going to battle. They're going to fight. But, uh, but it's important to understand that both sides are arguing within the parameters of who has just cause. And this actually, um, uh, maybe unsurprisingly, but it actually points us back to the dignity of man being made in the image of God. Because, it, you know, is it any wonder that you have a country like even today... Russia invading Ukraine under the pretense of recovering, recovering territory that supposedly was historically theirs many, many, many centuries ago. Right? Vladimir Putin got up there and he made a big speech and he was like, well, Ukraine was, was always Russian. It was always Russian. And it's like, well, why didn't you claim it for a long time? And all of a sudden now you got to have it. You know, I just got to have it. It's a fire sale on Ukraine and I just got to have it. All right. And so, but even notice that even Vladimir Putin feels it necessary to veil his land grab under the guise of just war. That he has to claim, I have just cause to do so. They're a bunch of, you know, the Ukrainians are a bunch of drug-addled Nazis. I've got to go take them out. And, and also Ukraine belongs to them. Any, anything that'll stick. But, he's gonna, but he feels the necessity to justify the war, Right? And what, why is that? Because it speaks to the fact that even in Vladimir Putin, Putin's conscience, we are, at the end of the day, accountable to God. And especially the heads of state are accountable to God for their decisions. And so Matthew Henry, the, the Puritan commentator, um, uh, he said, uh, he wrote this about war. He said, it, war is an appeal to heaven. It is an appeal to God, the judge of all, to whom the issues of it belong. If doubtful rights be disputed, he is hereby requested to determine them. If manifest rights be invaded or denied, he is hereby applied to for the vindicating of what is just and the punishing of wrong. Now he says, look, war is the last resort. War is always a last resort. But at the end of the day, you are asking God to help sort this out by giving people victory over evil. And Henry goes on, as the sword of justice has made, was made for the lawless and disobedient persons, so the sword of war was made for lawless and disobedient princes and nations. In war, therefore, the eye must be ever up to God, and it must always be thought a dangerous thing to desire or expect that God should patronize unrighteousness. 
It's a dangerous thing to do something unjust and claim that God is on your side. That's what he's saying. And so we rightly find Jephthah here appealing to God at the end of the letter. The Lord judge between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. Here we see that Jephthah doesn't call back upon Chemosh or any other pagan deity because he knows there isn't one. They are all the foolishness of the nations. The only God, the only true God is Yahweh, and he is the judge of all. And so the recounting of salvation history not only provides us with practical application about you know, how we think about war, but it also instills in us a confidence and strengthens our hope in our God who, who saves his people again and again from their enemies, as we see again and again in the book of Judges. And so no matter what we face uh, it's as the people of God today, we have a faithful Savior and Lord who, who, has, who has brought the church through the very worst of times. We see in the scriptures, we see in the history of the church itself. And it's because of the Lord and the faithfulness of God and the certainty of his truth and his judgment that we can be you know, like the excellent wife in Proverbs 31 who throws her head back and laughs at the future. Why? She's confident and she trusts in God. Because in the Lord, we know that our future is gloriously bright, even if now we live amidst gray skies. And so in this text, we see the calling of a rejected deliverer. And his first act of, call it, failed diplomacy. But in this text, we are reminded that the rejection of the Lord's servant only leads to future glory. And that is nowhere more true than in the person of Jesus Christ. So let us then today recite our history of salvation in the cross and in the empty tomb and in the throne in heaven and follow our Lord even as we endure spiritual combat. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have blessed us with a true Savior, a true Deliverer, not like Jephthah, but in Jesus Christ. And Father, we thank you, Lord, Because we know that the battle is yours and that you will judge. That your son indeed will be the one who returns to judge the living and the dead. We thank you for the the, the salvation that is ours by trusting in his name alone. By hoping in the gospel of grace. We pray, Father, that we would continually turn to you. And that we would look to the judgment that is to come when Christ returns. That we would turn to you in all the conflicts that are going on and Ukraine, Russia, Burkina Faso, and and many other war-torn countries uh, throughout the world. Father, we pray for your will to be done. We pray for peace to come in. We pray for the wicked to see justice. Father, we pray for sinners to repent and to be brought into the kingdom of God. And we pray for the people of God to be strengthened in our Savior, to be strengthened in, uh, in, um, in the truth of your word as we recount For ourselves and to one another, the history of our salvation that is in Jesus, that we may be strengthened and blessed and and reminded that your salvation is sure, that the the kingdom of God is coming, and that Jesus reigns. We pray this in his wonderful name. Amen.